Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. Two females working in the finance industry searching for alpha. My name's Emily. And my name is Clooney. And together we bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. As usual, any information discussed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals, and this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest. Today on our show, we're hosting the CEO and co-founder of another really interesting and innovative business, Travis Miller from iPartners. Prior to iPartners, he has worked in financial markets for the last 20 years and most recently as a managing director at UBS, but he was also previously a director at Deutsche Bank and ANZ. He has been a pioneer in the evolution of alternative investments and product in Australia and is also a successful investor in his own right, completing various property developments and investing across both public and private markets. In addition to all of that, I think it's such a great time to have you on the show, Travis, as I know iPartners has recently been in the press a fair bit, all for positive reasons, and we can definitely get into that a little bit later. But for now, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you making time. Absolutely, Travis, and it's great to have you on, as Em sort of just mentioned. Now, we didn't tell you this, but we do like to start every episode with the same question. So today, could you share with us one of your most embarrassing career moments? Yeah, no worries. I guess the first observation I'd make is nothing is embarrassing in the long run. So, you know, time heals all wounds. But uh, just to give a simple example, I grew up in a small country town, you know, pre-sushi train, uh, and then I got a job at Investment Bank as a graduate, and I was taken to a Japanese restaurant and expected to eat raw fish with sticks and uh, I had no idea how to use chopsticks. I'd never <laughs> eaten sushi, so I'd ended up a total cluster. But in hindsight, as I started with, you know, there's no great reason to be embarrassed. You know, I had a couple of great bosses and they, they laughed it off, as did I, but I guess at the time it felt it felt important. Are you um, a big sushi fan still to this day or have you um, really steered clear of the chopsticks usage? No, no, I've grown up. I can use chopsticks. I like sushi. I like to think I'm mildly more cultured now. It was a good lesson learned. Definitely. And sushi is not the only thing that you love. It seems like the best ideas are often created over a casual drink. So can you please tell us how you came up with iPartners and what you guys actually do? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been plenty of drinks and celebrations along the way, but it's not, we don't really come up with the um, business with that. It was literally myself and Rob Ankerville is a co-founder. We just simply thought there must be a better way to access alternative assets for the normal investor. And we think of ourselves as the normal investor. You know, we're, we're not a large institution. We're not, we're not a large family office. We just think we're normal wholesale investors. So we went out and built a tech platform to make investing easy. And we think using our platform, we've actually made it easier to invest in alternatives than, you know, to actually invest in equities using tech. And I guess the second part of the question, what we do, like we primarily represent our investors. So it's hard for investors to be experts on everything. So we see ourselves as representing them when we go out to source assets. So primarily it's about the investor. The second piece, we spend a lot of time just finding good investments because if you're not finding, you know, good risk-adjusted returns or interesting assets for investors, then you're not really of much use to them, to be honest. And what we do, how we make this work, is that we give investors choice because we allow them to invest in relatively small increments. 
So as long as they're a wholesale investor, they can invest a minimum of $10,000. And what we do via the technology, we'll aggregate lots of small investors to create one big investor. And when that one big investor comes along, that's when sort of the fun starts. You have a bit of power at the negotiating table. And when we go to capital raisers who are looking for capital, we can go then with a large, large investment, which allows us to get a little bit more power for our investors. The other thing I'd mention is that we focus a lot on building trust and educating investors because the way we see it is education is the ticket to the alternative dance in a way in that unless you can understand the product you're investing in, then you're highly probable not going to invest, right? Unless, you know, you trust the party you're working with, then you're highly you know, unlikely to invest with them. So we spend a lot of time on that basic education side of things. We've still got a heap of work to do. But, you know, podcasts like this is part of what we get up to. We do a lot of research articles. Um, we set up lots of educational pieces. We do roundtables. We just think that the alternative asset space will only grow when, you know, education gets out to a broader audience. Might have been a long answer to your question. <laughs> but I think I got across sort of, you know, my general thoughts on the process. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and great to hear you are promoting, I guess, education in the alternative space. Going into that in a little more detail, I'm really interested, Travis, what are the specific types of products and funds that you guys have on offer? And you mentioned investors coming in and once you get a big enough investor, then you've got a bit more bargaining power at the table. So can I ask where FUM is at the moment and does that move around a fair bit? Given the nature of our business, it just continues to grow and it's growing at a rate of knots at the moment. So, you know, as mentioned in the AFR, I think a few weeks back that we cracked a billion dollars of fun. By mid next month, I'd see we're probably at 1.2, 1.25 billion. So it's growing really quickly. Um, it's very diverse, the assets we look at. So when I look at alternatives, it's such a broad universe. But I think about private credit, so just things, loans, secured over an SME business or a company property debt, loans secured over, you know, a property asset, asset-backed debt, you know, loans secured by a pool of assets, your unlisted equity, venture capital, private equity, global infrastructure, anything outside of the traditional box. When I'm talking to people about alternatives, I say it's best to think about what it's not. It's not buying or selling bonds. It's not buying and selling equities. It's not cash, but it's pretty much most of the other stuff you know, is an alternative. And that's where we like to play because there's lots of people who do traditional assets really well and they'll continue to do so. We'll play where we think we're good and we've got the right skill set. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for covering that. And I guess when I think about alternatives, I'm thinking they're usually quite long duration and potentially illiquid. Can you maybe give our listeners an idea of what is the typical time frame for an investment? Is it that longer duration or, or do you target a bit more of a shorter investment horizon? Yeah. So yeah, you're spot on. They can be longer duration, but our assets have been around a 12 to 18 month average maturity. And the reason for that, the most interesting alternative asset has been private credit probably the last two, two and a half years because it's had nice relative value. And given how low interest rates have been, uh, it's been a pretty interesting space to invest. My personal view is that our average maturity will probably drift out a little bit because we're starting to see a lot more opportunities as private credit gets a little bit crowded and in particular property-based private credit, a lot of opportunities popping up in pre-IPO, private equity-like exposures. And as you step into more growth-based assets, you just naturally look to longer duration assets. So I can see it drifting out. Private credit's still interesting, 
But our goal is to give investors, you know, access to a diversified pool of alternative assets, which I think means a little bit of growth, you know, a little bit of yield-based assets and then just other quirky, quirky assets as well that fit in the alternative box. Travis, we've spoken to a few different investors and in previous episodes on our show, we have focused on active versus passive investing, small cap versus large cap, and how both of those aspects can help to diversify a portfolio. Alternative assets, I guess, in my opinion, is the next layer to this. Can you tell us why holding alternative supports a diversified portfolio and the key benefits of that from your opinion? Yeah. I mean, the key of it, you're just literally paying in a different pond. So when I was using the example before, what alternatives aren't, you know, not buying or selling equities, buying or selling bonds or cash. So we're looking at the other part, right? So you're playing literally a different field. And asset prices move to a different beat, right? So they're not they're not perfectly correlated. They'll tend to behave in a different manner. And so you're ultimately getting paid for taking different types of risk. And to give you an example, you know, a lot of people talk about alternative assets are less liquid, and that typically does tend to be the case. But by being less liquid, you can actually generate an illiquidity premium and get paid sort of a certain return for taking on that risk that may not exist in you know, actively traded listed equities. The other thing about the segment, there's often a scarcity of capital playing in this part of the market. And whenever there's a scarcity of capital, if you're providing capital to that segment, you tend to have a better buying power and then you can negotiate a little bit harder with people looking for capital because they have less sources of that capital. So I think a lot of those factors is you've got the pricing power created by scarcity. You're looking at different asset classes with different correlations traditional. And you can often push the risk return in your favour by you've got a lot more control in alternative assets. You can drive the documentation. You can drive the maturity. Uh, you can drive the exit. So all those things lead to just by inference a more diverse portfolio. That's great. You know, I guess you've really set the scene for why someone should consider alternative investments in their portfolio. I think that diversity and uncorrelation makes complete sense to hold as part of a portfolio. And, you know, you mentioned that you're about a billion dollars in funds under management now. So how have you had the impact of getting people to trust you with their money? And particularly as iPartners is a relatively new business, how have you gotten your investors to feel comfortable with putting their, you know, their money with you? And you mentioned they're wholesale investors and the minimum is typically lower than a standard alternatives portfolio. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned even at the start that the trust factor, how do you build that with your investors? Yeah. Well, the one thing we'd like to say in that you got that SME, we think we've moved to the M size business. We've moved from being a small business kind of to the M part of SME. But when it originally started, it was literally about the experience of the team. Like within our team, we've got a number of ex-MDs out of UBS, Goldman's, Deutsche, CBA, Westpac, ANZ. So it started with, you know, we were a strong team with good experience. The reason we've accelerated the last probably 18 months is I think we've done what we told people we're going to do. So we went out and got interesting investments. You know, we created alignment of interest for co-investing personally in quite a lot of assets. And we've actually got a lot of maturities coming through. So we're giving money back to investors. We've paid the distributions on time. And they're just starting to see that track record coming through. And I think that's where you get the trust piece of it because you just do what you say you're going to do and then it's all in the, you know, the outcome. Uh, and we are focusing on education. You know, we're not trying to hide anything. It's literally this is the product. We're very transparent. 
this is the information you need to understand. And so I think it just builds on itself. And the longer you're in business, I think that feeds from there. And yeah, it helps that we've got over a billion now. We've done over 180 funds. So now that track record is there and there's evidence that people can point to. That track record is clearly very impressive, Travis. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've clearly got a strong team there behind you. We've also, as we touched on at the beginning, seen some really exciting press around iPartners regarding a capital raise, potential IPO, and the appointment of your new chair, Bob Mansfield, who is the ex-chair of Telstra. What can you tell us about the corporate side of the business and how you found the process of raising capital and what are you using that capital for? What made you consider doing that? And um, if we can also maybe ask, why are you considering your ASX listing as well? Yeah, so the capital is all about as you grow to a certain size, you've got to really focus on the governance side of your business. So that's like getting independent directors in, getting independent chairs in, building out your compliance team, your legal team. So there's a whole pile of staff hiring that was required to match the growth. And then you're also on your product team, you get a lot of product turning up and you've just got to filter through the pipeline of, you know, what's good, what's bad, what's worth taking to your investment committee. So it's really about resourcing a business properly for growth because you've got to size yourself right now in a way where you want to be in six to 12 months. Otherwise, you know, you don't actually get to where you want to be in six to 12 months. You've got to spend now. So it was really for growth capital. The business is now profitable because of that investment we've made and you know that profitability looks like it'll continue to grow so i think it's been a good investment it was the right time i've actually got quite a good number of investors on board that can help the business too which is important that's great thanks for sharing that and then obviously a funds management business doesn't have much without returns so i'm curious to understand a bit about what type of return that you're seeking and how that varies between the different funds and the specific investment vehicle but then also whether you're yield focused or total return and whether there's a benchmark or hurdle return that you're kind of targeting yeah that's a good question so the return i seek i seek a better than fair return i look at an asset and i go that asset, the return looks like this. I want a better return than that. So I'm not going out there and saying I've got a hurdle of 5%, 10%, 15 I'll analyse things on an asset-by-asset basis because we look across the whole alternative asset spectrum. There's no benchmark. It's just all about getting a you know nice risk-adjusted return. But we, do, we look across yield, we look at growth, we look at combination. I mentioned earlier that The private credit spectrum has been really interesting for a couple of years and will continue to be so for a little while. But I think the opportunity is starting to pop up more in that pre-IPO equity space, so that'll be more growth-focused. So there's no real number that you look for. But talking about performance, like our yield assets have been in that 8 to 10% type return. We've got a flagship fund that's been annualising at 9.7% across the last two years. Our growth assets are normally clearly double digit. So there's a nice track record of performance, but it's never about, you know, a specific target. It's just that asset, that risk profile, what is the fair return and how can I adjust it in my favour, which could be by legal documentation, terms of the transaction or negotiating a little bit harder on behalf of investors to get a better price. So the unique, unique space alternative assets, nothing's written on the box. It's all about working for the best outcome for a given asset. 
I think you touched on a really critical point there in that you assess each asset individually, which in alternatives, obviously they're alternatives for a reason and so every asset is clearly pretty differentiated. Generally speaking, you know, alternative assets, I guess one of the key pushbacks have been that they are only accessible by the very wealthy. I'd love to understand who can access your product. You mentioned it's normally wholesale investors. Could you just break down the definition of a wholesale investor for our listeners and likely what are the minimum amounts associated with that? Yeah, and so this point here is a big reason why our business exists because it was all about giving the normal wholesale investor access to an asset class that they previously wouldn't get access to. So for us, the minimum investment amount as long as you're wholesale is $10,000. And the reason we keep it that low is it allows investors to build out a diversified portfolio of direct alternative assets so they can average into an asset class in the investment increment that's appropriate for their personal wealth. The definition of wholesale investor, and it's potentially will change over time, is a minimum of 250000 per year across the last two years or net assets of $2.5 million. There's a few other tests for criteria, but they're the primary ones that most would consider. But, yeah, so that's why it's that access point we provide is a key part of why our business exists. Just touching on that again, I've heard press speculating and the government speculating that potentially they're going to increase the thresholds to be considered a wholesale investor. Would that have a few implications for your business in terms of if, you know, currently a wholesale investor is deemed to have net assets of two and a half million and that increased to five? Would you see that as being a bit of a hindrance to iPartners or would you lower then the definition of who can invest? I mean, I've found with regulation and things over the years, the regulation comes into play and you just deal with it at the time. I mean, it may be that a few investors can no longer invest and they don't meet the criteria. That may happen. But, you know, the type of investors investing in this type of product tend to be, you know, relatively high net worth. But if that was to occur, we'd just deal with it at the time, I'd think. And just fitting iPartners into the broader landscape, um, are you saying that there's any direct competitors to your business and I guess then what would you say is your competitive advantage? Yeah so I mean there's always competition in different forms you know you've got offline competitors you know domestic and offshore there's not a heap of competitors at the moment in our sort of one-stop shop kind of model where an investor can directly access alternatives in increments that suit their their wealth Um, but that'll always change over time but I think The differentiation is we've got a very unique platform. You know, it's a bit like in the early days what you had for listed equities, those types of platforms, we've built something like that for alternative assets, which is a really nice investor experience. We've got a really unique product. I don't know if there's many platforms, if any, where you could invest in the type of assets we originate given the skill set of the team. Uh, The team expertise I think is a huge differentiator. That's how you build the trust. Most of the people involved in the business are well-known across the market with good CVs. I mentioned the tech, definitely investor experience. The other piece is which is we tend to really try and get a line of interest with our investors. Most of the staff within our business are actually personally investing in a lot of the funds. You know, a lot of the typical assets that we put on, I think it would be rare not to have a staff member in those assets. And we're going in pari pursuit alongside of our other investors, exactly the same terms, exactly the same price. 
And I think that creates quite nice alignment of interest with our investors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think investors love to see that you're co-investing, particularly not being favorable treatment on fees as well. So that's great to hear. And I have visited your website and seen your platform and I can say it is very user-friendly. One of the projects I noticed on there, which I think has expired now, but it was the Koala project, which was a super interesting one. Are there any other, I guess, projects that you want to call out that have kind of, you know, had a lot of attention from your investors? Our big point of differentiate is the um, we lend a lot of money to non-bank lenders. So you know you're reading the papers about buy now, pay laters or, you know, these types of entities. We've actually done a lot of lending in that space in the smaller groups. So we tend to bridge them, provide funding that can get to institutions or get to the banks. So we've seen as a point of differentiation is that we're very, very good at that space and we've bridged quite a lot of non-bank lenders and investors got quite attractive returns. So we're seen as that's something we're quite good at. But I think we're good at just, you know, diversity of assets. The Koala Fund you mentioned, we've worked on an aggregation of hotels, uh, an aggregation of farms. So it's very diverse on this kind of things that we can give investors exposure to. Yeah, I find that really interesting to hear. You're in the non-bank lending space. We recently just did an episode with Lee Hatton, who's an executive Vice President Afterpay and learning about that space I found was incredibly interesting in the way that the financial industry is pivoting. I guess a similarity between alternative asset managers and and institutional managers is identifying opportunities. How do you guys come across the deal flow? And I guess what are the key drivers to choosing to participate in certain deals or offering it to your clients? You know, are there certain financial characteristics that you look for? Or are there more general characteristics that you take into consideration? Yeah. So, I mean, we get a lot now from word of mouth as we've grown and we get a lot of repeat capital raisers. So, they've raised money with us two or three years ago. They'll come back to us. You know, the large advisory firms would be showing us transactions and actually quite a large source of products actually from from our investor base. So, it's pretty diverse how we're sourcing those leads. Yeah, great. And I guess as most of our listeners know, the aim of the podcast is really to increase our peers' knowledge and particularly women. So with that in mind, can you talk a little bit about your clientele and are you seeing an increased interest from female investors or is it still quite largely a male-dominated investor base? Yeah, it is. It's still largely still male-dominated. When I go across our database, you know, the large proportion of investors are male. What is changing is that we track a lot of statistics through our website and our referral channels. So the click-throughs and activity from women is increasing quite a lot, which says that there must be something we have that's at least getting, you know, women interested, but they haven't seemed to actually taken that next step to investing. But I think I mentioned earlier, I think as an industry, we haven't done a great job you know, with education on alternative assets. And we're working hard to improve that and we'll continue to do so because it's something we're passionate about as a business. And so my view is just basically if we provide good educational content and once we can build out trust with the investor base, which takes time, I think we'll just see a more diverse investor base flowing through, which, you know, ideally includes women and lots of different investors that we're not seeing at the moment. That's great to hear. Women are definitely increasing in terms of their interest in the space you know that's clearly an aim of our podcast to identify and promote talent and knowledge across the space so it's great to hear you guys are also on board with that 
You touched on this before, Travis, but a lot of your team comes from an investment banking background. Another aim of our podcast is to really help guide, I guess, younger generations in terms of their career path and all the different opportunities that are available in finance. Can I ask, when you're looking for talent, what type of skill sets do you seek out? Yeah, so I mean, as a founder, it's very, very broad because as you're building out the business, you always see a gap and think I should hire there, I need that skill set. You've got to be on your toes on how you hire. But my general thing is I really like technical skills. Like I need my team to understand the detail. Like when I get a document, I want them to go through in detail because documentation is a key part of alternative assets. It's often bespoke. You know, it's deep detail clauses you have to get right. So I really love technical skills, you know, attention to detail. You know, diversity is important. You know, group think is not of great value in general in business. You need people to ask questions and challenge. Networkers and connectors. You think about our business in a way, I'm looking for good product and I want to do DD on a broad universe of products. So who can originate and refer that product in? And then on the investor side, we're looking to build out our investor base. So people who can network and connect, it sort of probably pops up every time someone asks that question. And then good people with good reputations. You know, key part of business that I focus on, particularly on the product side, I want to know who they are, what's their background. Do I know anyone that knows them? Can I get a referral on them? Because it's just a background check of the people is one of the best filters in trying to whether you do or don't want to do a product because it's, you know, in a smaller, medium-sized business, you've got a choice, you know, who you want to deal with and you might as well make sure they're good people. Yeah. So I guess don't burn bridges. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's so, so true. Yeah. Awesome. So I think you've you've really highlighted, I guess, some of the benefits of being in alternatives, definitely the competitive advantages that iPartners have and some of the really interesting projects that you're offering your investor base. If our listeners are interested to find out a little bit more, what's the best way that they can get some more information or get in touch? I'd just call or message me or any of our team, to be honest. Like we pride ourselves on been pretty open and accessible. I mean, it's a differentiator of a business our size over a larger organisation. You know, you can get in contact with us. You can have a chat with us. You know, that's why we're here. But I guess the standard one is, you know, our website, ipartners.com.au. That's where all the information is. But I'm happy to have discussions. Now, before our last question, Travis, I would like to take this opportunity to thank iPartners for supporting the Alpha Females Invest podcast. It really has been fantastic to gain a deeper understanding of your business and I feel the concept of alternatives is really topical at the moment and investor interest is growing exponentially as you touched on at the beginning, which is fantastic to see. So thank you again for being a part of the show. But before we finish up, as we like to start every episode with one question, we also like to finish the episode with another question. Travis, you've clearly had a huge career. You've been on the investment banking side. You're now a founder and entrepreneur. Can you tell us what's your best career tip for younger professionals in the industry? Oh, I mean, I've probably got a couple. I mean, I think you've got to continue to learn, continue to study and challenge yourself. I think challenge others. Don't accept doing the way things used to be done because there's always a better solution. Probably the last one is don't respect hierarchy. My view is everyone's ideas are valuable. Just say what you think. Because ultimately, you know, some of the greatest ideas have come from interns, as good of ideas as come from founders. So I think just you've got to speak up. That's awesome advice. I love 
Love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Travis. It's been super interesting to do a deep dive into your sector and we really hope to keep up to date with all of the progress that you're making and hopefully next time we speak, you'll be at $2 billion or more. So thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Alpha Females Invest podcast. If you like this episode, we would love your support on Instagram. You can find us at Alpha Females Invest. You could also leave a podcast review, but most importantly, please keep listening. See you next time.